Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to a Mouse Clubhouse Conversation. Hi, this is Scott Wolf, and this is a conversation with Don Dorsey about the Epcot Nighttime Spectacular Illuminations Reflections of Earth. Don had been involved with Disney as early as 1975's patriotic America on Parade, and he was soon after involved in a major update of the beloved Main Street Electrical Parade. Don became the creative director of the Epcot production designed especially for the new millennium, Illuminations, Reflections of Earth. All set on the World Showcase Lagoon, with the fire, lasers, water fountains, fireworks, and video, a whole lot went into the creation of this now classic production. And Don was kind enough to share with me some of the details and behind-the-scenes magic that occurred to bring it to life. To give you an idea of the type of detail that went into the creation of this show, the water fountains could only produce four colors, and Don didn't want the typical colors. So four new fountain colors were developed for Reflections of Earth. They're lavender, mint, pumpkin, and lagoon. In the finale of Reflections of Earth, a single burning torch appears as a symbol of achievement, success, and pride. That torch together with the 19 torches now lit around the lagoon, represent one torch for each century of 2,000 years. And the show then concludes literally with a thousand points of light. The number of balls in each firework were counted to ensure it was truly 1,000. And they all light up in white to light up the audience and see members of our planet. In this conversation with Don Dorsey from 2009, you'll learn a lot more of the fascinating details and secrets behind Illuminations. Reflections of Earth. As you know, I've been a consultant for Disney for a long, long time. And I was brought on as creative director for the air launch project as they were developing the air launch fireworks technology. And what is that? Air launch is the system that Disney invented that propels fireworks shells into the sky using compressed air instead of the normal bag of black powder under the shell. It's actually a an idea that was adapted from the military. The military in war games fires dummy projectiles as part of their training exercise using compressed air. Tom Craven, who was technical director for entertainment, came across that idea and he said, you know, since we've got environmental issues with firework smoke and chemicals and all that stuff, let's see if we can adapt this idea of using the compressed air to shoot shells instead of the explosions if we can make that work for fireworks and if there might be any benefit to doing that certainly the environmental benefit maybe there's a cost advantage whatever so they got into that project and because i'd been around entertainment for a while tom said why don't you come on as our creative director and while we're developing the technical aspects of how to make this work help us understand the creative possibilities so over uh, a number of years we develop you know prototype launching machines and so on and and, uh, they actually invented a small computer chip because when you launch the shell with black powder, that initial explosion starts a little fuse burning up the side of the shell, and that's usually the trail that you see going up in the sky, and that ignites the shell when it gets to the peak. If you take away that black powder explosion, there's no fuse burning as it goes up, so you have to have something to actually trigger the final explosion. So they created a little computer chip that carried a little electrical charge, and on that computer chip there's a little circuit that has a timer, So you program the chip before you launch the shell, and then when you launch the shell, the wires break, and it starts counting when it launches, and then it releases that electrical charge and ignites the shell. 
Where the fuse would normally go in the side of the shell, you stick the chip in there. And it's not remote control, it's that it's a timer. So from the it's time programmed it's before launched. it leaves. Wow. Yeah, part of the launch mechanism is actually the connection. And then the computer talks to the chip. It actually measures how fast the clock in the chip is going so that when it knows how fast it's going to respond, it then programs the exact amount of time before it goes and explodes. Wow. Oh, so the timing accuracy increased 100%. And uh, we get rid of the visual trail, so you now have shells that can come out of nowhere. You also have, with the compressed air, the ability to decide, do I want it to go this high, do I want it to go this high, do I want it to go you know, super high, depending how much pressure you put in there. So with those two variable possibilities, the height and the timing, you can take one shell that normally would go up and look like a ball, you can time it so that it explodes early going up and, and it would create a blossom. You could send it up high and then time it so that it broke coming down. Oh. So now you not only have wow. intricate timing control, you have some staging possibilities and some different things that you can do with the same piece of product. We um, developed the, the Mickey Ears shell, which is actually three shells. But because of the air launch, we can fire them at exactly the right angle and exactly the right heights and time them so they all go together. So now you can have Mickey Mouse in fireworks. Had anyone used the air launch system for fireworks prior to this? No. So you and the Mickey head was one? The Mickey head was one. In fact, they had been trying for years to try and do it with conventional shells and never worked. And as part of our testing, I said, I wonder if, this, if we can do this with air launch. Let's just try it. And it was first time out of the guns. It wow. worked perfectly. And everybody kind of went, whoa, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, we also invented the shooting star effect, which is a sideways effect. Was that the first time that was used? Actually, the first time we invented that in uh, the year that Holiday Illuminations debuted. We created it for that show. Okay. Uh, Sandy Patty sings, Oh, Night Divine, and I wanted this great star to come across the lagoon. So they said, Oh, we never tried that. Let's try that. So uh, that's basically an air launch shell. And that was half of the effect that we used in the opening of Reflections of Earth, where that one shell comes in like this. And what you don't realize is that there's a second shell going up that oh. meets it. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Well, that's the stealth that you get without seeing that fuse go up. That's phenomenal. There was a reason we had to do it that way, because the original concept for the show was a cosmic collision. And we thought we could have two things flying in and meeting at the same point and exploding. But due to safety reasons, you cannot fire an explosive over the heads of people. Huh. It's... It's part of Disney's, you know, reasonable safety right, expectations. So we have the shooting star, which is actually lit from launch and just continues to burn. It doesn't explode at all. If it fell on the ground, it would just fizzle until it went out. There's no boom. We did that coming in, and then we matched it with the exploding shell coming up from the inferno barge at the same point in space and with the exact same timing. So the air launch enabled us to create that opening effect. In the shell that explodes, there are fragments of the same kind of product as the shooting star. So even though you see the shooting star go through it, you're not aware of that because all of a sudden a lot of pieces that look like it come out of the center. So it's a, it's a trick with timing, it's a trick with air launch, and it's a trick with the eye. So you were the show... Uh, the so, okay, yeah, you're right. You asked a bigger question and I got sidetracked. No, that's great. So I was working on the air launch project for a number of years, and I was also... Uh, starting in the early 90s, I started researching the millennium, trying to figure out what it was all about, what it meant to me, what it would mean to somebody else, should I get called on to do a, a millennium show. Uh, so I had done all this research about 
history and cultures and all kinds of stuff. And Tom Craven asked me to prepare an air launch concept for the millennium. So he said, come up with an idea for the company that makes sense to use air launch. And so I came up with the concept of fireworks all around the world for the millennium, introducing Disney's new technology, because roughly a thousand years ago is when black powder was invented in China. So as sort of the millennium of fireworks, here's Disney with a new idea and a new way, and it made sense that that was their angle into the millennium. You know, how could Disney be a part of the millennium without just seeming like it was glomming on? And it seemed like fireworks, since, you know, Tinkerbell flies over the castle in the world of color and lights the fireworks. The fireworks are sort of a Disney brand element. And I thought, let's use that, that visual that everybody knows, to represent Disney around the world during the millennium. So we picked cities in every time zone and all this stuff. And I did a presentation which I called Big Bang 2. And I involved the cruise line, I involved the studios, and I, it, had, it was just sort of a, let's see, you know, how big could this thing get, hoping that maybe they would pick a smaller package and we'd have something to do. And that kind of made everybody step back and go, wow, this millennium thing, there's a lot of possibility here, what can we do? Meanwhile, separately, Michael Eisner had suggested to Ron Logan that put together a Millennium Committee, uh, which was headed up by uh, Jean-Luc, I forget his last name, he came from Paris, from the Paris parks. And there were, I think there were 10 of us on this Millennium Committee that met and talked about, Jean-Luc wanted to put a list together of a thousand things to do for the Millennium. So I participated in that report. And then David Malvin, who was working for... Oh, yeah, my friend David Malvin was working for Richard Anula, and he called and he said, uh, I'd like you to develop a concept for the Millennium for the corporate level, because Richard has assigned me this thing and I'd like you to think on that. So because I was involved in all of these Millennium projects and we were pitching the World Fireworks Air Launch Project at the same time as Jean-Luc was developing what they thought was going to be the Millennium Lagoon Show, uh, I was in all those presentations. Well, at one point, Jean-Luc got up and gave his presentation for what he thought should be on the lagoon, and it was undoable. It was just not possible to do what he was proposing to do. And there had been another idea previous to that, which was called the Crane Show. It actually wasn't called that. That was the working name. Uh, that uh, Mark Fisher, who is a very famous lighting and stage designer for rock and roll concerts, had designed that had big cranes coming up out of the lagoon with lights and water squirting off of them and everything. And that could not be engineered to function. So when John Luke's show ran into a dead end, they had nothing. And it was now 1997 and it was time to get busy on building something. And because of my previous involvement with uh, New World Fantasy and Laserphonic Fantasy and Illuminations, I said, well, you know, I've got an idea and I just kind of wrote it up on the airplane and sent it to Scott Powhatan, who at that time was the director at Epcot. That is what turned into Reflections of Earth. They said, oh, this is actually kind of doable. Let's get him back down here. I was flying home and I wrote the idea. And they said, I got a phone call, said, can you come back on Monday? This was on a Friday I was flying home. They said, can you come back on Monday? So I was back to Florida and we worked through it and the budget was going to work and it was you know, reasonably achievable technology. And that's how the show got put into motion. And at that point, you were a creative director, or was it? Uh, yes, I proposed, I came up with the concept for the show, I proposed the show, pitched the show, 
did everything. I mean, it just came out of ideas that had been talked about Lagoon Show stuff for years and years, just random bits and pieces just sort of all came together with all of my thinking of the millennium and all of my experience in the lagoon and all of my technology background, my programming background, my music background, everything, just all of a sudden I sort of just had this idea that this is how it could go. We could tell the story of Earth in 12 minutes. Yes. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out how to create something meaningful for people who don't all speak the same language, don't all have the same culture, don't all have the same experience. You have to try and find that emotional connection. I've long been a proponent of radio because when you see something on TV, you know what it looks like. But when you listen to something without connecting a visual, your imagination takes off and the imagery in your mind is always exactly what you want it to be. It's always fulfilling. So I tried to create this show as a, not a history, you know, a list of accomplishments and things, but to just put up images that people would recognize and connect to and form their own meaning. Just take this idea of a beginning, a development arc, and a promise for the future, and let people see things that make them feel connected somehow and represented in the show, and then they will create their own emotional experience from that. And then if you get the right music along with it that's very you know uplifting and celebratory and, and all of that, you would have the emotional payoff that I was looking for. So. We were able to do that by keeping it abstract, keeping it you know, suggestive, not trying to be too literal, not trying to be too preachy, but just trying to present you know, an uplifting idea and connect everybody to it. And uh, Gavin's score really paid off. How I don't, did you find Gavin to do that? Um, originally, Hans Zimmer was supposed to do the music. Hans had made a deal with Michael Eisner at some point they were talking and uh, Michael said, oh, you should do a Lagoon Show soundtrack someday. And Zimmer said, oh, no problem, I'll do it for you. So when, when the show was, was decided we were going to do this show, then it was like, okay, we already have this deal with Hans Zimmer, so he will be the music guy. We came out to L.A., we met with Hans, I described the show to him, you know, gave him the timings and laid out the format and all that. And he says, well, this is great, but the, normally the way I work is I'll do it the night before it's due. So when is it due? And well, that well, he, I mean, he was being frank. He was saying, you know, listen, I got a lot, I got a lot on my plate. I know I promised this to Michael, so I'll do it. But the way I normally work is, it's you know, very much when it has to be done, it'll be done. But I, you know, don't expect it months in advance, yeah. which is not what we need to pull these kinds of shows together. You have to have something to work with because mechanics have to time a certain way and fireworks have to burn a certain length and you and those all those things require lead time to get manufactured so we met with him and came back to florida and reported in and said you know he says he's not gonna do it till the last minute well that's no good let's see if we can get him down here and whatever so we scheduled him to come to florida to see the existing lagoon show and talk to him you know so we could get a feel for it and hear it and understand what it was that he was being asked to do and he wasn't available for three months, so we waited three months. Then at the, the day before he was supposed to come, he canceled. He had something else to do. So we put him off for another several months. When he canceled the second time, Ron Logan finally said, all right, we can't do this this way. You have to have something done. So called up Hans and said, Hans, we, just, we can't be waiting. Is there somebody who's under your wing that you could assign to this? Yeah. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll have Gavin do it. So Gavin came down and we met here. Now, did you know? Uh, knew Gavin nothing of Gavin. Knew nothing of Gavin. Uh -huh. He didn't have 
credits other than he had conducted some scores for Hans. Huh. So, so I didn't know who he was. He came here as a little quiet British guy, very polite, very nondescript. You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. He's not boisterous or outgoing. He's, he's very quiet and very nice. And so I talked, I played him music that's you know, like this and like that, and I want to do this, and here's the timings and all that. He goes, okay, I got it. And he didn't take notes. He, and I'm, so I'm going, oh, what am I into now? And he went away, and uh, I didn't bother him for a month. And then I called him, and he said, I've almost got something. I'll send it to you in a few days. And so a few days later, a CD arrived in Federal Express. And I'm shaking, you know, as I get this thing out going, is this going to be just another horrible moment in the thing, or is this, you know, is there a promise here? And I put in the CD and, I, and started playing the music, and I, I started crying because it was good. It was exactly what we needed, and it was actually his first draft was very close to what we ended up with. Really? Remarkably close. Uh, normally, you don't hit the nail on the head the first time out. You, you get some ideas going, and then you say, all right, let's take this, and we can do that, and redo this part. And it was, it was so thoughtful and melodic and uplifting that I thought, you know, this guy, there's something inside him. He really understands what this piece of music has to do. So from there, it was just like, this can work for that, and let's extend that, and now can we orchestrate this a little differently and just work out some details, and went through three or four different drafts of little things, and then we put the acceleration on the beginning, and that was that. Then we went to London and recorded it. What direction did you give him before he wrote the music? Uh, what did he know about the show? Or he had the complete of format of the show and evolution and the subjects that I wanted to include in the what I call the history part, although it isn't really history, it's just sort of categories of exploration and architecture and art and technology that sort of fall into an evolution but aren't really, if you think about it. He had that, we had timings. Uh, I had specific moments that had to have a certain kind of visual effect, uh, certain moods I wanted to create. One of the, the hardest things to nail was in this idea of history and the evolution of Earth, the moment at which humans appeared on the planet. Mm. Some people would probably say, well, this is the big deal, you know. So we're all humans, we're celebrating this, so let's make this a big moment when man arrived. And I said, no, let's make this actually just sort of a little subtle turn when things change. But we don't know what that means until much later. Mm. You know, it's not, now we're born and all right, let's go to town. It's kind of like, this is a pivotal moment, but you don't know that at the time. You never know until afterwards what it was that has changed everything. The butterfly effect. So I kept having to back him off of that moment, saying, no, just do, just find some little subtle thing that unless you know what's happening, it means nothing musically. It's just a, it's just a change. So we fi he finally just got this little oboe thing and a modulation there that was just perfect. And uh, it's very subtle in the video. It's actually a moment that a live horse freezes and becomes a cave painting. And, and very subtly leading up to that, the pictures of the animals. We chose pictures where the animals all sort of look towards the camera for a brief moment, as if they are aware they're being watched. And then we see the cave painting, which is the result of them being watched. And that is how we introduced the idea of humans on the planet. So we tried to keep it very sort of artistic rather than literal. And then, of course, there's the, it's actually a, a, the only uh, computer-generated shot in the whole thing is coming out of the cave. 
turning from the cave paintings and coming down the corridor and bursting into the sunlight, and then we're off on our adventure. And everything else is live action? Everything else is, is uh, yeah, actual footage. Of course, there was no footage way back then. Well, but no, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, as far as the music, um, had you ever told him you wanted kind of a classical sound or anything, or was that his, his thing? It's very classical sounding or orchestral. We, we must have... Well, he had heard other Lagoon Show soundtracks. I think we almost implicitly understood that something on this scale with this sweeping thing, it wasn't going to be a rock soundtrack. It wasn't going to be jazz. Um, I just think we both knew that it had to have some scope. And I said, you're free to use anything you want in it. But I don't remember ever saying, you know, I want it to be exactly like this. Um, I, ga I gave him lots of examples. I gave him, you know, clips from Cirque du Soleil, clips oh, okay. from jazz, clips from John Williams scores oh, okay. for feeling, for oh, examples okay. of feelings. And we did have conversations specifically about using odd tempos because the opening sequence, the chaos sequence, I didn't want it to be, you know, straight 4-4 four, four so that everybody felt really comfortable with it. I wanted it to feel a little bit off balance. So I said, you know, if you want to put this in five or seven or change in the middle, go ahead. And so he ended up actually creating something that goes all over the, the time scale. There's a lot of it that is in 4-4, four, four, but much of it is in five. Some of it is in seven. There's a sequence as it's accelerating towards the end that goes seven, six, five, four, three, and then you get the big explosion up, up high. And we use that concept of acceleration throughout the show. I decided on that as a motif as I was watching a hockey game on TV in the yacht club one night. I was thinking, I need some kind of an idea that expresses how things seem to move slowly and then they get a little faster and then they get a little fat. You know, the same thing we see with technology. Started slow and then all of a sudden changes come faster and faster. Before you know it, stuff's changing every day. And if you look at the history of the universe, it's kind of that way. You know, if there was a Big Bang, then it was a long time before things settled down, and then some planets formed, and then nothing happened, and then a little bit of life evolved, and then it took a longer time before it came out of the water. And, you know, just thinking about all these things, this idea of accelerating time seemed like it brought us to here and would move us into the future. So I said, let's use this clapping thing that everybody knows how to do you know you hear that you hear three things and you know they're speeding up and you know where it's going so right away your audience is in sync and is knowing what it's going to do and knows what happens at the end which is it goes so fast you can't keep up so i said let's do that in drums to kick us off and then we have this shooting star and then we have this crazy dance of fire that keeps us off balance and we don't know what it is and all that that ends with the creation of the stars and then into that comes Earth. So we knew it was was building, 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 explosion. Then now we're calm again. The creation of the stars is where you just see. It's, it's at the end of the fire, it goes all white yeah. and sparkles down, yeah. and they settle on the lagoon. Okay. And into that star field is is where the Earth comes. Hmm. So then we're back. We reset zero, and now we're going to start a gradual acceleration into the show, hmm. and then reach a peak again at the end of the main part of the show, and then start again as we go into the future with the, the finale and the song at the end, moving into the future. And then there's a final acceleration on the end of the show. With the music, aren't they used, um, I don't know whether it's commercials or something, but some of these pieces... Well, what cool. happened was that this piece of music, because Disney owned it, and Disney owns ABC, 
ABC said, you know, this is great music for bumpers for news programs, and they, they used it for their millennium coverage. They did photo montages of fireworks all over the world to this music. Gavin won an Emmy for it. Oh, you're kidding. An he Emmy won an Emmy for, for the music oh. for the millennium coverage, but it was this piece of music. And because ABC owns it, you see it on political convention coverage. You know, it's all over the TV. And the song that we wrote for the, for the end, Promise, and We Go On, which they're both they're derivatives of each other, has been used in numerous weddings. Um, I get emails from people. It's used for um, charity events, cancer survivors want to sing it at their thing. Is the sheet music sold for you? Yes. Yeah, there's band arrangements, choir arrangements. Um, and this is the finale piece, the music that they're We Go On is the finale piece in the show, and then Promise is the playout song, which is actually, the chorus is from We Go On, and the verse is the theme from Tapestry of Nations. Oh, is it? Yeah. Huh. It's not as apparent, because in Tapestry of Nations, it's instrumental, and now here it is with lyrics attached to the chorus from the show. So you, you tend not to connect the two. I wrote the lyrics. That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> and that was a last minute because uh, yeah, as part of Gavin's creative package, he was supposed to provide the lyrics. Oh. And originally, there was, you know, we didn't know that it was going to be. All the lyrics that are in the show. Yes. That's just the we go on at the oh, end of the show. And then I wrote the introduction for Jim Cummings. Um, is that Jim it is Jim Cummings. Oh, wow. He You'd, does everything. He does so, everything. So it's like Winnie the Pooh is actually the... Uh, right. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's great. And I had done some work with him because I w recorded a lot of Disney shows and did audio post-production on countless shows here at my studio. Uh, so we had worked with him before, and I knew that voice. And I was looking for grandfather, Indian chief, <laughs> your conscience. I was looking for some voice that could embody this idea without being any of them you know saying come in this grand story sit around the fire and let's share and uh he just three takes were done it was almost like not enough fun you know it was yeah. so fast you're in you're out it was perfect no reason to stay thank you very much we're out it just had a, a marvelous feel to it exactly what i had had hoped for it I forget when the idea to have him blow out the torches came along. I think I think it was at the voice session when he was he had this tone. I said, you know, could you just like give us that? I wasn't sure if I had made the connection, but it just felt like that's what we wanted next. Yeah. So and then we did it, and and actually it's a great great moment in the show when everybody kind of goes, oh, it's yeah. con we're connected. It's the voice is connected to all this stuff somehow because it yeah. it's a manifestation in the physical world that you don't expect. Was it your idea in the electrical parade uh, to have the lights cued? The first time, you know, when it came back from America Parade, when it was like, boom, and the lights go out on cue, was that your idea? Yeah. The first time I saw the electrical parade, which was 1972, standing on Main Street, the lights went out, and this oscillator sweep happened, and the music faded up. And of course, the parade came along, and nobody had ever seen anything like it, so that was fine. But when it was going to come back, and I had the opportunity to suggest ideas and so on. I created this fanfare and I said, look, this gives you an opportunity now to create this moment mm -hmm. when it happens. Yeah. But it just seemed like it was appropriate and right to take advantage of a musical moment that's as you're getting into the tempo and take that sound, which sounds like something electronic happening, 
and connect it to the lights. Yeah. So you did that again with the just a simple, it was such a simple yeah. It, it really is derivative of the same idea. I'd not really thought of it that way, but indeed it is the same gag. The lyrics. So you were going to say how so, that came to you for the end. So. I knew, knew that. Let me, let me ask one thing: that you knew you wanted lyrics. You knew there was going to be a song with lyrics for the end. Yeah. After we had done this great musical adventure, it seemed like to do something new and fresh, we couldn't just have more music. We had to connect to a human voice. And again, it's the idea of acceleration. It starts with one voice, and then two, and then a choir, and then a bigger choir, and then bigger. Again, it's that theme that we're trying to find a way to really build back up the next acceleration moving into the future and do it a little more quickly. So I had had always talked about the millennium as being the, a connecting point between the past and the future. We stand on the boundary and we, as we're passing across, you know, we look back at our history and we look forward at the future. And marketing had chosen the, the concept of hand in hand. Uh, for the the marketing. That was going to be all throughout the various parts, right? That's right. That's right. The theme That's song right. Throughout the park. Yeah. Uh, come so and join the future hand in hand or something. Celebrate the future hand in hand. And so, I, well, that just plays exactly into, you know, as parents, you have children and you have parents. You are the connection point in that middle. It's your responsibility to take, to learn from your parents and then to pass that on to your kids. And we're constantly, as we move into our futures, passing on our knowledge and experience to the next generation. And I said, the millennium is really just sort of the uber experience of that. You know, now we stand on a boundary, we move into the future, and we, we are the connection between the past and the future. And therefore, it's our responsibility to decide what the future should be and bring that. So that became the guiding message of what I wanted the lyrics to do. In a way, it's a wedding. It's a wedding of the past to the future. So Gavin, not being a lyricist, had some people that he tapped into and said, you know, can you put lyrics to this piece of music with this kind of an idea? And there were a few different drafts that we got, and none of them really hit the spot. As the recording date got closer and closer, we kind of needed to know what the lyrics were going to be, if we had to pick a certain singer who, you know, in a certain range, because the orchestrations had to be done. It was all like, come on, we got to figure this out. And... Nothing was happening, so I said, "All right, I'll write them." And I had never written lyrics before, really. You're no. I was and ask that. and finally, it's like, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Yeah. The original producer that was working with me, named Mark Nichols, was removed from the project right at this time. Mm-hmm. He was promoted sideways, and somebody else was brought in. And Mark and I had become very close, developing this show. And on one of my trips flying home from Florida, just after he had been moved aside, I called him from the Dallas airport and we were having this conversation. And, and I said, I know how disappointed you are and I'm extremely disappointed. I'm very mad even. I'm frustrated. And, you know, but we go on. And it wasn't until I had hung up and gotten back on the plane that I'm ruminating on this idea of we go on and listening to the music and going, oh, you know what? That fits. So then I thought, okay, so that really speaks in a generic way to what has enabled humans to survive. In any day, there are up moments, there's down moments, and yet the core message of the human race is, no matter what, we go on. It's just a simple statement. It's non-judgmental. 
It just states a very clean and simple fact. We go on. And you can make of that what you will. It goes back to the radio idea. If you are an optimist, you can go, yes. You know, and that's, I think, what appeals to the, these cancer groups and all these charities and so on. And if you are a pessimist, you know, it hopefully gives you a little bit of hope and aspiration to the future. Otherwise, you know, it's something in there for everybody. So that's what I based the song on and then tried to, in the verses, just, you know, say, there are, just look around you, there are great things. I wanted something that just really was sincere. Yeah. And Epcot is a unique opportunity to do that. The shows that you do at Epcot can speak to cultural elements and outside the, the influence of the characters and the stories and the fairy tales and all that. You really can kind of celebrate all of human experience, which is really what World Showcase is doing. And that's why with this show, in that venue, we were able to do things that you couldn't do in a fireworks show over the castle. Yeah. Had the globe been used before? In Laserphonic Fantasy, we built a fiber optic screen sphere. So the idea of the sphere as centerpiece had existed since 1984. And during the lead up to the millennium, one of the things they were looking at for Epcot generally was whether or not they could cover the entire spaceship Earth with LEDs. Oh, wow. The structure of Spaceship Earth was not strong enough to support all of this added weight. So there was a physical limitation. And then there was the question of, well, what are the pictures you show on it? And who's going to do all that programming? And you know, how do you shape images on a sphere? And so that everybody was like, well, since we can't physically do it anyway, we're not even going to answer those questions. Yeah. So and again, that was one of the ideas that had been stuck in my brain about what does the Millennium Lagoon show need to look like? And so as soon as I said, well, this, is, this has got to be the history of Earth, then it was a pretty quick jump to say, well, then Earth can tell its own story. Yeah. And instead of being a complete ball, mm -hmm. um, because, again, it's, you get down to cost, and only a third of the Earth is land, so, yeah. <laughs> so we can cut two-thirds of the cost by only having the continents be the LEDs which then we had to figure out how do you do a screen that's shaped like North America instead of just a rectangle. Yeah. Not only physically was it a challenge, but electronically, how do you address all the right pixels when you don't have them all? Yeah. So, you know, there were a number of challenges involved in making this work, and LED screens were very much in their infancy back then. I had the best of all possible positions because I just all I had to do was say, no, it has to do this, and then somebody else's problem to <laughs> figure it out. Um, and you know, I said, okay, I want a, I want a barge that does fire. So the special effects people said, well, we got three fire effects. We got this, we got that, and we got that. And I said, well, I want something more active. How can we do this? And they said, well, those are the only effects that we know that are off the shelf. And I said, well, can't we play with some stuff? You know, let's get some pipes and try squirting it sideways and squirting it into something else that it bounces off of. So it, you know, so we did all we were like kids, you know, playing with fire. Yeah. We did all of these uh, probably not safe things, but we did them in a safe way, um, experimenting, trying to find interesting visuals. And so we created six or seven different looking effects, and then created the inferno barge and said, okay, I need four of these over here, and I need to go there, and I need to do this. And then the question was, how do we program this? Mm -hmm. Typical WDI thing is you make a special programming console and you sit and you do some of it and then you go back and you fine tune and it all sounded very intricate and difficult. And I 
being a keyboard player, I said, why don't we just hook it up to a MIDI keyboard and I'll play it like an organ. Wow. And somebody said, oh, I guess we could do that. So the MIDI keyboard triggering every key on the keyboard would trigger a different valve on the barge. Okay. So we did that. We hooked it up and I sat in a trailer in Showcase Plaza and I said, I want certain valves on certain keys. And then I you know, had to kind of feel my way around. What does this look like? What does that look like? If I do this, what happens? Because there's a lag time and, you know, how long can it burn? Does it get bigger or does it just kind of sit and do this? So I had to kind of figure out... Triggering the fire, not video. Triggering the fire. Okay, gotcha. Had to get a feel for how the fire behaved. Yeah. You know, I was, it's a, a new instrument. Yeah. For a couple of nights, I just kind of felt my way around, you know, okay, if I do this, that looks pretty cool. Okay, so I'm going to do that and I'm going to go with this piece of music. Figure that out. When it came time to actually do the recording, mm -hmm. you know, you press record on a computer and the music plays and I do, I can't watch what I'm doing because there's a lag time oh. from what the music is. So I have to just, I have to practice and figure it out and do it from memory. Yeah. But then since it is saved in the computer as a music sequence, mm -hmm. when we watch it back, we can offset the delay so that it actually gets seen properly. So then you can look at it and you say, that one needs to be a little longer, and you just okay. grab the little note and make it a little longer. Okay. So you just do a couple of fine tunes and you play it back and it's done. <laughs> and we were done in an evening. Again, one of those things that went by so fast you go, wait, it needs to be more fun. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to last longer. Yeah. You know, in that particular aspect, one of the challenges was that we had a budget for 200 gallons of propane a night. So you can't just do, go wild and do everything you want. You have to make some assumptions about, okay, I need to keep things short if I can. As long as I can get the effect I want, you have to be responsible about not going totally bananas with it. Propane budget. Yeah. I mean, we had so much expendable cost per night, and we knew what the fireworks were, so what was left over went into yeah. the propane. And, you know, of course, I could have juggled that if I needed to, but it worked out pretty well. Yeah. What about the video? The video... Trying to fit videos that will look right within continents. Yes. This was a challenge. And all from stock footage, because, you know, there's no budget to go traveling around the world taking pictures. It's like, you need to find what you need from what's already there. Was and stock or no, we went to several it? different stock libraries and made deals with them. You know, for a blanket price, we can take everything and use it. But finding the right images that looked reasonably good in those unique shapes and an additional requirement that I had was they sort of had to be geographically appropriate. We're not going to put pictures of the pyramids in North America. Right that added an extra constraint, an extra level of difficulty on choosing the images. Yeah. The way we actually produced that is that we would work on North and South America, and then we would work on Eurasia, Oh, so you, okay. and then they would composite them together. And a lot of it was, let's try this, and then you have to wait for it to render, and then you get to look at it. Um, that was quite tedious and time-consuming, and especially the opening sequence, which is abstract, where, where we go from red hot to cooling into uh, vegetation and then reveal animals and so on. All of that was much more abstract. Once you get to, okay, I need a hit where we go to architecture, you find all the architecture things and you go boom. That was a lot easier to do after you found the pictures right. 
than to create this sort of evolution from random things in a way that really went with the music. Yeah. One of the other things we had to do was we had assumed that because the music goes quite fast that we we're going to have lots and lots of images. Mm -hmm. But we did a, a distortion on the video, wrapped it around a fake sphere, and had it rotate. So we were able to simulate what do you see when the thing's going around and at what speed. So we determined the speed of, that the barge needed to rotate by looking at a graphic simulation of, you know, no, that's too fast, I can't see it yeah. enough. Was or, yeah. Uh, no, that's too slow because it seems to take forever. So we arrived at um, one revolution every two seconds, I think. Maybe it's one in three. But what it meant was that there's an interesting aspect. You know how I talked before about how when you hear the claps, you anticipate, you know where it's going. Mm -hmm. When you see something coming, yeah. you're automatically waiting for it. Yeah. There's always something coming. So you're yeah. always waiting. That's so you're thing. always connected to the show. It's just a natural function of that globe is that it, it's hard not to look at. Yeah. How many different areas were there? Uh, you, you combined North and South America. And well, North, no, they're actually separate. Uh, separate That's images. Right. So how many separate images did you end up doing? Well, Eurasia, we tried to keep it one, but sometimes it was two next oh, to each other. Um, Africa is one, obviously, and Europe is part of Eurasia. Um, and Australia was kind of small. When we designed the globe, we knew that we had to do some artistic license with how big continents were and where they were, because most of the land mass is towards the north. There's not too much down here, so we knew we had to kind of cheat stuff down. We knew we wanted to cheat continents bigger so we have more screen space. We knew we wanted to make Australia bigger. And we had to have New Zealand and Hawaii because those people would feel slighted if we didn't. Even though there's not enough pixels to make an image, you had to put them there, and they had to be part of the thing. So, I mean, I insisted on that. People kept saying, can we throw away Hawaii? It's one light. <laughs> no, you cannot throw away Hawaii. So we created a big, we got a big ball of styrofoam, and we painted it. And we played with the way that the earth looked on the, on the globe until we had it right. We would repaint the coastlines and say, okay, that's, can we move that here? Until we had that model right, we didn't, do any construction or any electronic figuring out. We got the model of the earth right, maximized the continents, made it look artistically appropriate mm -hmm. and geographically reasonable. Then we photographed it in slices and then they mapped that around the, the engineering model and then they figured out where the pixels go in there and then they gave me the pixel layout and I did some coastline redesigning based on how it appeared to the eye. So I had to actually look at after they had just sort of plunked pixels down inside the outlines and say, we need one more here to make that feel like we know Santa Barbara is. We need one more here so, cause, so that Italy's boot looks like a boot and not like a disconnected thing. And, you know, there was some finessing just for visual impression right. of how the coastlines needed to be. And if you looked at it, you go, that doesn't look quite right on the drawing. But when you see it in light and it's moving, it works. So there was a lot of detail, you know, hands-on before they said, all right, these are how many pixels we need and where we need them. Wow. Then all the electronics people had to figure out how to do that. Wow. So uh, there's the globe, there's the music, there's the video, there's the fire. initial fire. 
fireworks, yeah. the, you know, the synchronization, all that, and the initial show and how it came to be. Am I missing something? We haven't talked about the fountains. Oh, right. The fountains are essentially the same fountains that we started with in 1982 in terms of capability. 17 back row nozzles, eight fleurs that come forward, and four different lighting circuits. So you get four different colors and that's it. You pick the colors and that's the way they're gelled. Hmm. They're glass lenses with color, so you don't have every color available. You have to pick exactly, and it's a piece of glass that goes in there because the gel would melt. So you're limited in the colors that you can create and pick. The back row goes up, these go out, and everything else has to come from the way you use them because they don't swivel, they don't, there's no animation there. So all of the movement of the water has to be created out of how you animate them and program them. And one of the things that we had done in the previous Lagoon shows to make the fountains look more spectacular was to try and do very intricate, fancy stuff. You know, keep them moving so that they look as animated as they can. So we had never done slow things. You know, just let the back row grow slowly. And with this show, there's the whole thing when the vegetation is coming into the picture. We take that idea and we use it as just a growth idea with green. And then when we do the, the camp, the whole fire thing with the cave, we come back down to just a single jet that's that fire orange yellow. We chose the colors for the fountains very carefully based on what we were doing with the pyro and what was in the video. And we came down to four colors that would allow us to create the most interesting looks on the fountains that we hadn't used before. We had in previous fountain shows, we'd use yellow, green, red, and blue. And we wanted to do something different. So we picked in the creativity section, we picked four pyro colors. We picked an orange and a purple and a teal and a something else. And we blended those pyro colors specially for that section. And then we lit the synchro lights, the uh, surround searchlights. We gelled those with the same colors to match the fireworks so that while we're shooting fireworks, we're also lighting the smoke in the same colors and uh, creating as close as we can on the fountain barges. So color coordination was also a tricky aspect because of, you know, you're very limited in the color palette available on the fountains. And programming the fountains previous had always been like a computer program. You type by the, this nozzle to 80% and, you know, computer line code. And for the first time, we were able to program them using a lighting board. So we could do fades and create a pattern and repeat a pattern without having to figure it all out numerically and type it in and, and hope that it was what you wanted. So we sat in a trailer with a lighting programmer and worked out the timings and the, the feelings and all that. And Did you do that so you're watching the show and are you able to do that live? It's a pretty quick process. You sit in the marina and you say, I, I create a timing chart from all the time codes so I know where every beat is, so I know how much time is between here and here and I know I want the water to hit here and to fall here. Oh, but see. what you have to take into account is gravity because you don't just turn water off and it's gone. You turn water off and then it falls. So there are several times in the show when I actually use that as an effect. The water falling is part of the programming. Uh, the water rising, like I said, at a slower rate or the way in which it comes in is a look, a timing, a color thing. Tried to just approach the fountains differently than we ever had before. And because they are playing as support to the earth, the earth is really the star, we were able to get away with that pretty much. Yeah. And then there's the lasers. Yeah, yeah. 
In Laser Phonic Fantasy, obviously, we tried to use the lasers as much as possible. The lagoon is a huge place. And because the safety aspect of lasers is quite complicated, they're regulated by the government. There's a Bureau of Radiological Health. And if you shoot a laser into the atmosphere, you have to either terminate it on a building so that the beam ends right. in a specific place, or you have to get the FAA to shut down the airspace. Oh my goodness. So every night before Laser Phonic Fantasy, we have to call the FAA tower at oh. Orlando and say, we're going to do the show now. Lisa, you um, go for that. And they route planes in a different way. Oh. Well, we also terminate as many beams as possible. When we're laying out what we can and can't do with lasers, you know, we bounce off of a mirror here and it's got to go there and it's got to end at that spot. So they actually do an alignment before the show where they go out and they adjust the mirrors to make sure that it's ending at the right place at, at low power, at low power. Before and yeah. And the show started October 1st? That was the official premiere. We had previews the week before, which were essentially dress rehearsals. And, you know, like any show, you have an opening night, but you've, people have been seeing it for a while. And we did a two-day press event for the whole millennium where it was just like running from one interview to the next all over the property. I mean, they couldn't schedule me to do 10 radio interviews in a row at Epcot. It had to be two here, get over to the Magic Kingdom, do a TV stand-up, then get over to Disney MGM, do a radio, then come back to Epcot. You know, I was like, just madness for two days. Yeah. So October 1st is the official opening day. Uh, which was the kickoff of the entire Millennium celebration. I'm very pleased that the show has stood the test of time and continues to satisfy your experience. Certainly, in terms of an impact, I'm very, very proud of the reach that we've been able to have and the number of people that we've been able to give this kind of a, hopefully a connection to their place on the planet. We hope you've enjoyed this Mouse Clubhouse conversation. Thank you for joining us.